is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're You should always do your own homework and let's know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Hi Stuart. Uh, yeah. Here with here with my two co-hosts, Stuart Brigham, who you just heard, and also That's me, uh, Paul. Paul, you there? <laughs> yep, I'm here. How you doing? Hi Paul. <laughs> How are the kids, Paul? My mediocre children are fine, thank you. <laughs> Paul, uh, why don't you tell tell the audience, in case we have some new listeners, uh, what we do on this show? Happy to, Matt. We are an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. That was contrived. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we? Isn't that our thing? That is that is our thing. And uh, for today's episode, it is a our first official episode where we're partnering with the American College of Physicians, the ACP, to bring you an episode on what was a bit of a controversial statement on A1C targets, the controversial part of which I will read on air with Dr. Consagra here in a little bit, where we will kind of delve into the evidence behind the guidelines and sort of how we can practically apply this to patients that we're seeing in our practice. Dr. Devin Consagra is an associate professor of general internal medicine at the Portland VA Medical Center and the Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine. He went to University of Connecticut School of Medicine and did an internal medicine residency at Yale New Haven Medical Center. He has co-authored several guidelines for the ACP, most recently the guidelines on type 2 diabetes and hemoglobin A1C targets, which we will be talking about today. And without further ado. It's going to be a sweeter episode than most diabetes episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk all about diabetes today, but we want to start off just so the audience can get to know you. You haven't been on the show yet. Can you give them a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. I am a 43-year-old general internist, husband, and proud father of uh, five-year-old boy-girl twins and a polydactyl cat named Fonzie. (laughs) What's a polydactyl cat? Uh, many, many, uh, thumbs. So if Fonzie has, uh, seven digits on her paws, so Ernest Hemingway was famous for having polydactyl cats. He had tons of them. <laughs> Are you a writer as well? <laughs> Other than the guideline uh, I, that we're talking about? <laughs> I, I like to read and, and, uh, I think I, I would have loved to be a writer, but, uh, maybe I'm too lazy. <laughs> Hard job. Me too. Yeah, this is odd. This is the second time that Hemingway's come up on this podcast, if memory serves, which it makes, I guess, for a nice segue. I'm just going to ask you for a book recommendation. It doesn't have to be medically related necessarily. Just what's the last good book that you read that you think others would enjoy? Um, uh, recently read uh, Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Oh, yeah. Which, is, which was terrific. And I highly recommend it. One of the best things I've read in a long time. Yeah, very well reviewed. I haven't gotten around to it yet, but it's on my list. Not not very medically related, but it does talk a lot about the afterlife. So, you know, a lot of things that our patients are probably thinking about when we're visiting with them in the hospital. So maybe maybe it's an insight to that. What's the uh, best advice that you have ever received as a learner or an educator? 
Uh, well, I'm fortunate to have gotten a lot of good advice and worked with good people. Um, I'm thinking right now, I've, I've had the good fortune of uh, spending uh, the last 13 years precepting alongside uh, Dr. Jim Ruler in clinic, and he's this kind of masterful clinician um, and uh, does a lot of aspects of professionalism really well. One of the things that he does with um, the, the residents when uh, he, he used to attend on wards is ask them, I think getting at the issue of burnout, he would ask them a couple of questions, one of which was, you know, is there anybody at home that's worried about you? Um, which I always thought was a great question. And I just recently, in the last couple of years, started asking that myself when I met with the residents at the beginning of each rotation. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, gives one a lot of insights and also shows people that you're really plugged into the notion of a burnout and and your colleagues as people and and certainly Jim Roller is a, a a master of that and so um, I, I've learned a lot from him and and many of my other colleagues here. I yeah I love getting tips like that. Another another way and I think this might have been from MedRants the MedRants blog talking about asking uh, asking your learners or your residents what do they do for fun, just kind of showing giving them a chance to talk about things outside of you know, the patients that you're taking care of together. So I'm going to have to start doing that more often. Yeah. I tried asking my residents, what's the last song you intentionally listened to? And <laughs> it came off sounding really judgmental. Um, and so, so I stopped doing that. So these are better questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess you could get into a long discussion of whether or not that was a good song. Or... <laughs> yeah. My face has sort of a resting look of judgment. So it just doesn't go over well. So I, I'll probably incorporate your question instead. So let's move in, uh, Devin, let's move into talking about this, this topic of A1C targets, which was the topic of the guideline. I'll read the full title here. It was hemoglobin A1C targets for glycemic control with pharmacologic therapy for non-pregnant adults with type 2 diabetes mellitus, a guidance statement update from the American College of, Physician, of Physicians, and this was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine earlier in 2018. So this this generated a bit of controversy, and we're going to talk about the specific recommendations. I think first, kind of just putting out there would be what resources did you use, and how did how was this guideline written? If you could just give a little bit of the background to the audience, so they have an idea of where these recommendations were coming from. Sure. So um, the first thing to note is that these are a little different than our traditional. Uh, clinical practice guidelines that we also do at the ACP. So this is called a guidance statement. And, and we do these when there are a variety of guidelines um, which have differing recommendations. And the idea is to look at the guidelines as the primary source material and the, and the trials included in those guidelines. So that's a little bit of the background on the, the methods we use for these, which are a little different from the clinical practice guidelines. Um, and the reason we did this is obviously because Diabetes is a commonly seen condition in primary care practice, and um, the notion of glycemic targets is still uh, an important one that clinicians wrestle with, and we continue to get questions about you know, these differing recommendations and what they all mean. Um, and as you mentioned, it's a really long and not very pithy title, uh, but it does, you know, the reason it's there is is to clarify that really we're talking about type 2 diabetes, and in this case, we're talking about pharmacologic therapy. Mm. Um, 
and it's important to to clarify that up front because you know we're not talking about type one diabetes, we're not talking about lifestyle interventions. Um, and I will just note for emphasis that ACP agrees with you know most every organization that lifestyle interventions are critically important, and that if patients have lower A1Cs with lifestyle interventions alone, we're all for that. So which, which body of evidence and which trials were the main ones that you looked at in writing this guideline? And can you give us sort of like a 10,000 foot view of, of what those, what those said? Sure. So the nice thing about this topic is that really everybody is looking at the same handful of trials. Uh, so we're really talking about five trials. If you, if you end up splitting the UK PDS trials into two, um, and so those are UK PDS, you know, 33 and 34, uh, the VADT trial, Advance and Accord. Um, and uh, the UK PDS uh, trial was one of the earlier of these studies. And, and that, that study was actually done uh, as a follow-up to a study called the UDGP uh, study, which actually suggested that there might be an increased risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality associated with insulin use. So the UK PDS trial, part of the genesis of it was to test whether or not um, these treatments were harmful. Um, so they did uh, their initial trial and they looked at a couple of different things, sulfonylureas and insulin um, to achieve tighter control versus less tight control. And um, in that trial, they achieved 7% A1C versus 7.9%. Um, and then there was the UK PDS 34 study, which looked at metformin in uh, obese uh, individuals. Um, each of those trials were initially reported at 11 years of follow-up, and then they reported longer-term follow-ups at 17 years. Um, additional trials were then done, the VA uh, uh, DT trial, which is a VA study, in higher risk individuals who had had diabetes for a fairly long time uh, and looked at um, tighter control versus less tight control, uh, the advanced trial, uh, and then the ACCORD trial. Um, all of these tested tighter control uh, compared to less tight control uh, with important differences amongst the trials in terms of the population and the specific targets chosen and the meds used and so forth. When we're talking about type 2 diabetes, oftentimes people talk about microvascular comp complications and macrovascular complications, mainly talking about like cardiovascular disease. What did these trials in general say about that? Because that's sort of the argument that we hinge our tight glucose control is like we're trying to prevent micro or macrovascular complications. So in general, what, did, what was the outcome of those five trials? Right. A 10,000 foot view of the, the overall results is that uh, there appears to be a small reduction in surrogate uh, uh, measures of microvascular complications uh, over time, uh, over about a decade and uh, longer. Um, there has not been consistent evidence that macrovascular complications have been reduced with tighter control. Uh, there may be a small reduction in non-fatal MI uh, overall, um, but the effects are inconsistent. Um, part of the issue is that uh, the microvascular outcomes, a lot of what the, the trials report as positive outcomes are surrogate measures. Right. 
surrogate measures, meaning these are measures that patients can't feel themselves, uh, but they're laboratory markers. So examples would be, include uh, progression to albuminuria or the need for retinal photocoagulation as, mm. as markers of uh, uh, microvascular disease. But when you look at clinical microvascular outcomes, the event rates were relatively low, and uh, there wasn't a consistent benefits across uh, these these five trials over time in those. Yeah. Now, that, that same statement does not incorporate some of the newer trials that we talked about in the pre-recording, like the Impareg Canvas trial, right? Right. So, um, the, the, there's a whole a slew of newer studies looking at these newer agents, the SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 inhibitors, and the DPP-4. Um, there was just a, a large uh, a meta-analysis in, in JAMA that looked at, um, you know, a couple of hundred of these studies. And, and these newer drugs, especially the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 inhibitors, had some promising outcomes associated with them, including uh, reduced risk of death. But the, the, these newer trials are not about glycemic uh, targets. So these are studies largely in very high cardiovascular risk patients. Um, with baseline hemoglobin A1Cs above 8%. Um, so they weren't really testing the notion of, does, uh, is there an incremental benefit to pushing one's A1C lower uh, relative to more moderate targets? And in fact, the A1C difference uh, that a lot of those trials achieved was relatively small. And, and that kind of brings up a, a, a question that I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are going to have. And uh, what is the... And I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this as well, but what is the fundamental difference in ACP's recommendations versus prior guidances when it comes to diabetes control and management that kind of brings to light some of the concerns or at least questions about some of the, the legacy data versus some of this newer data? Yeah, so um, I think there's actually a lot of similarities between uh, our recommendations and other groups. So we looked at six different guideline uh, groups' recommendations, and ours are probably the closest to the v VA DOD uh, uh, guidelines and, um, and a group called ICSI, uh, which is the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement. Um, and uh, so all the guidelines uh, emphasize the need to individualize targets and that we needed to consider patients' views on uh, the burden of treatment, their risk for hypoglycemia, the potential benefits of the medications, and, and potentially cost as well. Um, so all guidelines say that, and we do as well. Um, many uh, uh, the guidelines, especially the two uh, uh, I referenced, um, talk about a range of hemoglobin A1C targets. Um, and uh, so we had uh, said for most patients, a, a, a range of 7 to 8% was, was reasonable. Um, our uh, guidelines are a little bit different in that we have a recommendation for de-intensification or to consider de-intensification in those with uh, A1Cs below 6.5%. Um, and, uh, most guidelines did also point out that those with limited life expectancy, uh, severe comorbid illness and so forth could opt for a, a uh, higher treatment target. I'd, I'd like to point out that our, our good friend, Paul's favorite, Dr. Jeff Colburn actually <laughs> was the, 
he was the lead on the DOD side. He was the lead author on the VA DOD guidelines. And mm-hmm. they they do split it down. Basically, the, their most strict control is 6 to 7% for people with a life expectancy greater than 10 to 15 years. And then um, their, their most lenient is for patients who have life expectancy under five years. It's like A1C of 8 to 9%. And they yeah, they do talk about some of the... S- uh, same things that you you did in the ACP guideline. I think to bring it back to the the five landmark trials that we were talking about, kind of how we got to these recommendations. To summarize what you said, you said that the the UK PDS VA diabetes trial accord in advance that for microvascular outcomes, they were looking at these like they weren't necessarily looking at patient centered outcomes. Patients can't feel albuminuria, and you know maybe the I think they would care mostly about blindness, not necessarily about like retinal photocoagulation, which was one of the uh, endpoints that was increased. Um, they decreased the need for photo retinal photocoagulation in the intensive group in one of those trials. How about, and you said macrovascular wise, there was maybe a 15% decrease in non-fatal MI. Any other important things from a cardiovascular standpoint or macrovascular complications that, that we learned from those trials, or, or can we move on to talking about some of these other things here? Well, well certainly one of the critical things is the ACCORD trial and the finding of an increased uh, uh, rate of mortality in the tight control group. So there's a 20% uh, relatively increase in, in the risk of death uh, in that group. And, and people don't really know why this was found. Um, and, and, and it roughly works out to a number needed to harm of about 90, uh, right? So um, I think that's a critical finding. So whenever we're uh, considering these um, guidance statement recommendations, we're always weighing evidence for benefit and evidence for harm. Um, when the evidence for harm is when you have something that may be less concerning or where you don't have uh, real strong evidence of harm, you know, your willingness to um, take uh, data on, on a, a kind of marginal benefit, uh, you might be more apt to do that. But in this case, uh, 20% increase in the risk of death is a serious thing. And all trials have uh, shown a two to threefold increase in the risk of hypoglycemia associated with intensive control as well. Right. Yeah. And we, I mean, we talked about Bennett's balancing benefits and harms when we talked about the sprint trial, like, yeah, the kidneys are going to take a little bit of a hit, but you're hoping that you're saving cardiac events, uh, strokes and heart attacks. But with, with hypoglycemia, that's something that can kill you or put you in a coma. You know, it's a, it's a little bit more of a high risk endpoint that we're looking at. And with Accord specifically, they were looking at an A, they were trying to get the A1C below 6%. So it was the from what I saw, it looked like it was the strictest target they were. And at the same time, they were also targeting low blood pressures in that trial kind of in parallel too. Yeah. How about the agents used in these trials compared right. to the more modern agents? That's yeah, a great question. And it's a challenge in interpreting this literature, especially with the spate of newer agents that are available now, right? Mm-hmm. So um, as I mentioned before, UKPDS, the the main part of the trial, the largest part of the trial, looked at sulfonylureas and insulin. And uh, Accord looked at similar, but they also, uh, a, a large proportion of patients used uh, the thiazolidinedione uh, medications, which have uh, largely fallen out of favor. Um, and, you know, none of these trials would have included uh, the, these newer agents that we were talking about. So, 
there's a lot of debate in the literature. You know, is the cord, the finding of 20% mortality increase, is that related to the agents used? Uh, it, it, the, you know, the post hoc analysis, it's not clear that it's only related to the, the, the agents that were used. Um, we don't really know. Might that risk uh, not be there? It doesn't appear to be there with SGLT2s and, and GLP-1 uh, inhibitors, but we don't have as much data on them in terms of uh, the amount of time they've been out on market and the, the duration of follow-up that we have from those studies. Um, so, yeah, it, it may be that this discussion is, is very different five to 10 years from now um, as we're looking at different medications and that maybe we move towards a kind of risk-based treatment approach with these newer meds rather than a glycemic control treatment approach, which has been traditionally what we've been pursuing. Right. Yeah, the newer the newer trials that were referenced uh, with the SGLT2 inhibitors, which we can link to Empereg and the Canvas trial, the the A1Cs I think started a little bit over eight percent, and then they dropped down to between seven and eight percent um, during the trial and and by the end of the trial, they didn't really drop people below seven percent from what I from the ones I was looking at. So it, and that's right. And, so- so, for instance, in the Empereg study, the, the difference between the two groups, I think, was 7.8% versus 8.1%. Mm-hmm. So a pretty mm-hmm. small A1C differential between the two um, groups. Let's start kind of delving into the, the guidance statements here. So guidance statement number one, and I'll read, the, I'll read it verbatim, and, and then we can kind of unpack it a little bit. How about you let Paul read it? He hasn't talked much. Yeah, Paul, do you? <laughs> I love to read, so I, I'd be happy to. And I, I think even before we get into them, it's, it's worth noting that even though the, the controversies are fun to talk about, I feel like there's a good chunk of the guidelines that are actually concordant with, with other guidelines, things like individualizing therapy and um, being a little bit more permissive for patients who have limited life expectancy. But we'll get into all that, I guess. But So guidance statement one. Clinicians should personalize goals for glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes on the basis of a discussion of benefits and harms of pharmacotherapy, patients' preferences, patients' general health, and life expectancy, treatment burden, and costs of care. That recommendation is kind of foundational to all of the other recommendations. Um, and, and as we already discussed, it, it, you know, most of the guidelines uh, out there have moved towards saying something similar to that. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason, you know, we have it in there is because this is a condition in which we're talking about a kind of finely attuned benefit to harm ratio. Um, and there's a lot of other con- considerations. We're talking about treatment for a long period of time, some risk to the treatment, some questions we've brought up about the uh, margin of benefit and so on and so forth. So whenever you have these kind of finely attuned uh, conditions, it's that much more important to consider individual values and preferences and all these other considerations, life expectancy, comorbidity, you know, number of other medications they're on, uh, cost, exposure issues, and, and so on and so forth. So these are all important considerations. You know, if we were writing a guideline on uh, the use of aspirin after myocardial infarction, you know, we probably wouldn't have that recommendation there, right? That the... the, <laughs> the um, you know, you probably don't have to have a lot of uh, shared decision-making discussion and wrestling with the the pros and cons in, in something like that. So guidance statement number two, Paul, did you want to read read that? Clinicians should aim to achieve a hemoglobin A1C level between 7% and 8% in most patients with type 2 diabetes. And so this has been the one that I guess has maybe caused the most uh, consternation among sort of other societies. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So in terms of the consternation, so, you know, interestingly, when, when I hear from primary care colleagues or what I've read on online and, you know, in the media coverage, um, many other primary care docs or societies largely say, hey, yeah, that makes sense. And that's kind of what we've thought or what I've been doing in practice anyways for, for this number of years. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, many primary care aligned uh, uh, practitioners and organizations, I think, uh, feel like that isn't such a controversial um, uh, recommendation. Um, and, and others uh, have uh, pushed back a little bit because it appears to soften a little bit the targets. But like I said, it, it is similar to other guideline statements out there. And I think really incorporates a clear view of the evidence of both benefits and harms. Mm. Um, and we think that this range captures correctly the appropriate balance of benefits and harms that we see across the trials that we're talking about. Are there any specific patients that you'd recommend or ACP would, would recommend intensifying further, uh, lower than 7%? Right. So uh, it's a good question. So as, as the recommendation states, this applies to most patients. So this doesn't mean that this applies to 100% of patients so that you'll never have a patient for whom uh, a, a, a lower target might be okay. Um, so the, the, the uh, situation in which this discussion most often comes up is with metformin, right? So if you have a patient with uh, a hemoglobin A1C of 7 or 6.9 or whatever, um, what's, what's the matter with just using metformin to get them to a lower target? Um, and certainly it's true that the risk of hypoglycemia is much less with metformin, um, and there may be some other potential benefits of metformin. Um, strictly speaking, uh, we don't have studies that have uh, uh, suggested that uh, A1C targets uh, much below 7 improve outcomes, including with metformin. If you look at the metformin study, the um, uh, you know, achieved A1Cs were above uh, 7%. Um, so you know, many of us in clinical practice, if we have a patient who's just on metformin and their A1C is you know, 6.8%, we may leave them on uh, metformin and they, they may be doing just fine. Um, there's a difference between that and saying, okay, somebody's A1C is uh, 6.9%, 7%, starting them on a new medication is the evidence there. Um, and we thought now, but, you know, I think metformin is an example where the, where the harms might be less. So you might be um, uh, okay to, to do that. But um, without the evidence of benefit there, uh, we can't come out with a recommendation saying, yes, all people should, you know, be on metformin to achieve an A1C of 6% or whatever. So at, a lot of the times we use the show to sort of air our own guilt. Um, Wado is famous for that. and I, I'm about to do it now. So I guess one of the things that I, I thought about with this particular recommendation is clinical inertia. I talk a good game when I'm precepting, but I like my patients to like me, so I tend to not add medications. And has there, was there any concern that if you sort of move the thermostat to 8, then maybe 8.2 might be acceptable or 8.3, and sort of you might sort of be over-permissive? Was there any consideration to that um, specific concern when the guidelines are being formulated? Uh, yeah, so we were certainly aware of those arguments, and that, and that is one of the arguments that we hear when people are pushing back, is that there's a concern that 
any kind of moderation of the targets might lead to exactly what you're saying, that people might interpret that and kind of overshoot the other way. Um, what I'd say to that is, one, you know, I think our patients deserve a clear and transparent discussion of what the evidence shows and doesn't show. And we can't uh, just kind of guess that uh, by doing this, uh, we'll uh, uh, kind of end up in a worse off place. Um, we, we need to be transparent about what the evidence does and doesn't show. Uh, and and then the, the second issue is that clinical inertia works in both directions, right? So yeah. um, uh, it, it might be that by uh, moderating the targets a little bit, some people end up with higher A1Cs. But we certainly know, and there's data to prove this, that the, the other end of things already occurs, that um, uh, people uh, who have achieved very tight control and might be being harmed by that tight control uh, their treatment is not de-intensified, and in many cases, it's intensified. So there's some really interesting work looking at that. So um, it, this might relate more a little to the next recommendation, but there's some interesting uh, data looking at rates of intensification and de-intensification, even in populations who are uh, highly comorbid or have limited, limited life expectancy. So um, our move towards tight control over the last couple of decades also brings with it a, another form of clinical inertia, which we're still dealing with. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, and I'm not sure, and I'm, now I'm sorry to be hogging the microphone after my long period of silence, but I guess the other consideration that I heard discussed is the so-called legacy effect. And so I, I, I guess the thought that is that if you achieve tighter control in patients that are newly diagnosed, you actually end up with better outcomes years down the line, if I'm understanding it correctly. Was that also one of the right, considerations when writing this? Yeah, so that's one of the things that's brought up. And so what, what that references mainly is the UKPDS study. And, um, you know, the UKPDS 33 study, which is the larger of the UKPDS studies, um, uh, they targeted fasting plasma uh, glucoses in the intervention group of 106 milligrams per deciliter versus 270. So you can, uh, <laughs> the, the, the differences are stark there. And the, the achieved A1Cs were 7% versus 7.9% uh, at 11 years of follow-up, which was the, the, the first uh, uh, kind of main trial reporting, they didn't find a significant uh, improvement in macrovascular outcomes uh, or death. However, they reported um, outcomes uh, six years after that. So 17 years of follow-up total. Um, and uh, in those patients, um, there, uh, you know, a mortality and MI benefit did emerge. And the absolute benefit for mortality was 3.5 per 1,000 patient years. And the absolute benefit in MI was 2.8 per 1,000 patient years. Um, and the interesting thing is that the A1C differential in those groups largely disappeared over time. So that's where the legacy effects came in. They said, well, they, they kind of achieved these A1C differences early on. And 17 years out, we're seeing this, this kind of mortality benefit. And, and, and that's what a lot of people are referencing as the legacy effect. Um, as to, you know, what's underlying that legacy effect, nobody really knows. There's some hypotheses. You know, maybe it's by decreasing the amount of glycated uh, end products uh, early on, you see, improvements uh, later on, but nobody really knows. 
Um, so that's where people have talked about the legacy effect and why some organizations recommend, you know, lower uh, uh, targets, uh, lower in newly diagnosed patients or younger patients because they have time to achieve the benefit. And, um, you know, strictly speaking, this legacy effect was seen in newly diagnosed patients. Um, so certainly we would say, you know, we've got a range of seven to eight. So you might aim for a lower end, uh, uh, lower A1C in that range for younger patients um, uh, and newly diagnosed patients. Gotcha. Um, I wanted to swing back when we were talking about metformin, which was used in the UKPDS 34 trial. I correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought they did see uh, an absolute reduction in all cause mortality and MI in that in, in that portion of the trial where it was metformin versus uh, just standard therapy with diet alone. Yeah. So UKPDS 34, which is the metformin one, did find um, after 11 years of follow up a reduction in all-cause mortality uh, of 7.1 per 1,000 patient years right? and diabetes-related death of about 5 per 1,000 patient years. Guidance statement number three says, clinicians should consider de-intensifying pharmacologic therapy in patients with type 2 diabetes who achieve a hemoglobin A1C level less than 6.5%. This was a specific point of contention with uh, specifically the American Diabetes Association and their sort of response to this. Is there... Is there a situation where you might not de-intensify? Can you kind of give maybe give one example of a of a case where we should and where we shouldn't de-intensify therapy? Well, certainly the the biggest rationale for that has to do with the evidence, right? So, as we've already discussed, you can't really point to a trial showing, uh, you know, clear, consistent, large evidence of benefit from targeting uh, A one Cs uh, um, that are that low. And with the Accord trial we do have evidence of serious harm. And as I mentioned, all studies suggest an increase in the risk of severe hypoglycemia. Uh, and, and certainly that's going to be true as you reach below 6.5%. Um, so that's the, you know, the kind of the evidence-based ra- rationale for that. You know, aside from that, as I alluded to before, there's real-world evidence that uh, clinical inertia in terms of overtreatment, uh, exists. So there's an interesting uh, study that looked at uh, rates of de-intensification in patients in whom everybody would agree they shouldn't be on really aggressive treatment. So if you look at patients with less than five years of life expectancy with A1Cs less than 6%, only about 30% of those patients had treatment de-intensified, right? So um, even for these patients, for everybody would agree we should be peeling back some of these treatments. It doesn't get done. And that has to do with a lot of things, right? So it has to do with the, these are patients who have other comorbidities that you have, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes to see them. Um, and discussing de-intensification is not going to rise to the top of that list unless you're explicitly, um, you know, asked to consider it. And there may be other things. There are survey studies and other things where uh, of primary care physicians who actually say, you know, I, I'm worried about de-intensifying because I'm, I'm worried about not achieving a performance measure. Or I'm worried about litigation or other things. So th- those are certainly concerns that primary care physicians express when you survey them. So part of the rationale for the um, this recommendation is that we know in practice people aren't de- de-intensifying. 
in that unless you come out and say, hey, at least consider this for your patients, people aren't going to do it. So I had a patient who's got his oxygen on. Uh, you know, he, he had had a coronary artery bypass surgery last year. And, and uh, you know, we'd been dealing with a lot of other things. And then we got around to talking to about his diabetes. And, um, you know, his A1C is 6.3%. He's meticulously, uh, you know, got all his blood glucoses uh, written down. And I realized, oh, you know, there's the occasional 70. He's had, you know, one or two hypoglycemic uh, episodes. You know, luckily, nothing severe. I was lucky he didn't harm or, you know, himself or fall or whatever. Uh, but they said, oh, you know what? We should actually pull back. And he was surprised to hear, oh, you, you don't actually have to aim for that that, that uh, lower target. And, and, and um, we pulled back. And I think his family was grateful for that. So that was an example of uh, I was only thinking about it because we had just written these recommendations. And, <laughs> and before that, I hadn't really it hadn't been on the top of my list of things to do. Right. But hopefully uh, people think about it more. Now, certainly on the other side of it, if somebody's got an A1C of 6.4%, they're doing fine. They're not on many medications and they're just on metformin and they're happy with that. I don't necessarily de-intensify those patients or take the metformin away. Uh, on the other hand, if somebody's got on 17 different medications and they've got an A1C of 6.4% and they want to come off metformin, you know, I, I, I probably would put pull back on that one. Um, so it's a, it's a consider recommendation, and part of it, it is just get, get clinicians thinking about that for their patients. Guidance statement number four is one that I wanted your help interpreting a little bit, and, and we had a question about this on Twitter from one of our listeners. So basically, it says, clinicians should treat with uh, patients with type 2 diabetes to minimize symptoms related to hyperglycemia and avoid targeting an A1C level in patients with a life expectancy less than 10 years, and then you list a whole bunch of things, advanced age, which was 80 years or older, residents in a nursing home, chronic conditions like dementia, cancer, end-stage kidney disease, or severe COPD or CHF, because the harms outweigh the benefits in this population. So my my question here is, how, how did you determine this list? Was there any specific evidence that this came from, and is there any sort of tool or app or something like that that can help us figure out life expectancy when approaching these patients? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, unfortunately, I can't point to a single tool. And it, it gets a little tricky, as you can imagine, with these recommendations. If we come out and say, uh, you know, uh, calculate life expectancy using this tool, um, we we take a fairly evidence-based approach to, to the recommendations and we'd have to then, you know, essentially do a review or rely on a review of, of those particular tools, right? Um, so uh, we have to stop short of, of advocating for a specific tool. Um, and, the, and the list that's in there are, are meant to provide some examples of conditions in, in which the life expectancy is uh, likely to be less than 10 years and in which uh, patients are unlikely to, you know, reap uh, benefits from tighter glycemic control. Um, and so, you know, the notion of life expectancy calculation is a challenging one uh, overall. Um, um, uh, but uh, certainly we do know that when considering life expectancy, we do much better if you consider both uh, age uh, and sex along with comorbidities. 
uh, right? So uh, actuarial tables based just on age and sex uh, are going to be much less informative than when you include comorbidities in there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a couple of studies out there that have tried to come up with um, uh, life expectancy prediction uh, formulas based on comorbidities and prior hospital utilization and other things. And some of them work pretty well. Sounds like you're kind of talking about with the 80 year old, the example you gave there is it's kind of like chronological. So if someone's 85 chronologically, but biologically, they have no comorbidities and they're still grocery shopping and their A1C is uh, 6.8% on metformin and they don't take many meds and they want to keep with it. You know, that's somebody that I might let them keep on metformin because functionally that person's like 75 years old, you know, not necessarily, and their life expectancy might be more than 10 years just the way that I would think about it. But yeah, these comorbidities, the list here is pretty, in general, most of these people are not doing well. Right. One thing I came across when I was trying to look this up was this notion of the surprise question, where like, Hmm. you ask yourself, like, would I be surprised if this patient died in a week, a couple months, or a year? And that there's a study I can link to where basically, that had a high negative predictive value. So if you're like, yes, I would be surprised, then you know, there was a low chance of that patient being dead. It's it's not a great question for predicting <laughs> no, it's not. who is going to die. But it had a negative predictive value of like 94%. I thought it was interesting. I yeah. you know, I was grabbing at straws here trying to figure out how to how to exp- uh, get life expectancy, you know, estimate it. Just ask patient how much yeah. longer you think you have to live. That's yeah, probably, yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably exactly. more sensitive. Or the next visit be like, I'm surprised to see you back. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. So we do know there have been studies done. There's a recent interesting qualitative study. Uh, This has more to do with cancer screening, but asking patients, um, you know, how they prefer to be talked to about this stuff. And and they they seem to not want to be told, you know, you know, that you're you're too old to to see a benefit, but rather phrasing things as, uh, you're you're uh, unlikely to derive benefit from this this medication, rather than saying you know you're, you're not going to live long enough to see a benefit from this. Um, anyways, that's that's a tangent, but a, but a really important point. We we mentioned it a little bit, but is the ACP doing anything, or do you expect that performance measure measures surrounding A1C targets might be relaxed? Was that part of the hopes of putting out this guideline? Yeah, so we, we actually state in the manuscript, we have a little section basically saying, you know, we'd, we'd ask people to shy away for, or to not uh, develop performance measures for A1C targets anywhere under 8%, right? So some people have looked at performance measures of A1Cs of 9% to really capture, um, you know, those patients who are really kind of fallen off the radar or you know, really uh, might not be getting good quality care. Uh, but we certainly don't advocate for an A1C uh, performance measure of 7% for, for many reasons that we've already discussed. You know, whether or not organizations will relax as it'll be interesting to see. There's a lot of, obviously, uh, the whole notion of value-based payment and MIPS and all of this has been uh, uh, come uh, under discussion recently. So. I, I know NCQA uh, that defines poor control as greater than 9%, and there's two different uh, tiers of control. There's less than 7 and less than 8%. But uh, in general, as long as you're you're uh, targeting less than 8%, you're at least meeting the NCQA standards. 
David, can you give us some take-home points that kind of, I mean, we've talked, we've been like all over the map here, but maybe if you could just sort of give us a couple take-home points that you'd like the audience to remember uh, that they can use in their practice, maybe. Sure. I guess one general one would be, you know, whenever you're looking at guidelines for, for anything, make sure what you're looking at, the, 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 the recommendations include some analysis of the balance of benefits and harms. The, the quality of the overall body of evidence, which includes the consistency of findings amongst the different trials, uh, values and preferences of patients, and, and maybe even costs. Um, so that's kind of a general point. Uh, the, the second t- take-home point would be that for most individuals, the balance of benefits and harms, and the benefits we've talked about really are these kind of surrogate measures of microvascular outcomes, which take a long time to accrue and uh, perhaps uh, a reduced risk of MI and macrovascular outcomes in inconsistent and, and small absolute risk reductions over time, and that most people can take advantage of the benefits and minimize harms by aiming for an A1C between 7 and 8%. The, the last take-home point is to, to really encourage clinicians to think uh, not only about adding medication, but when is it appropriate to take medication away um, and when, when should we be thinking about de-intensifying for uh, some of our patients? If it's not on our mind, we won't do it. So uh, just to kind of put it on your list of things to consider during a clinical visit. I think that's it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us on air here. Thanks, guys. It was nice talking to you. It was great really, talking really to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. Paul and Stuart. Any wrap-up comments you wanted to make? I mean, something that struck me here was just that the NEF madness this year, like the winner, was patient-reported outcome measures. And I feel like if you look back at the five landmark trials for type 2 diabetes, they just had these big kind of lumped-together endpoints with lots of things in there. And a lot of the microvascular outcomes just like are things that patients are not going to notice and don't care about. And we've talked about that. I I, I think for me, the the take-home point in general, and this is not just from ACP, but also from the American Diabetic Association, and that is to personalize your glycemic goals. Um, just like you, like you were alluding to, you, they're, they're talking about non-clinically significant, at least from not from the patient's perspective, outcomes, but the patients are concerned about their day-to-day life. They're concerned about um, how annoying it is to check their, their blood sugar four times a day when, when they're not going to be compliant anyways. They're, they're worried about, um, for some of my patients, maybe excessively worried about hyperglycemia and they're unwilling to de-escalate therapy. I think it's important to have that discussion to counsel your patients on what the, what the limitations of our current knowledge base is, but also to, to come up with some shared decision-making with your patient so that they are invested in their own care and it's not just something that we're dictating to them because ultimately we're going to lose them if we're just going to, just going to dictate their care to them. And I think both the American Diabetic Association and, and ACP would agree with that. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think something that came up that I thought was interesting is maybe in the future the idea of sort of targets based on risk. So rather than having sort of this broad-based range where for higher-risk patients, the lower end of the spectrum and, and lower-risk patients or patients where tighter controls less of a concern at the higher end, there'll actually be specific targets. I'm thinking specifically of the uh, right. the AACE lipid guidelines that are actually really sort of stratify and give you specific goals and why they chose those right. goals. You can actually have that shared decision-making rather than leaving it in the hands of the primary care doctor alone. So I, right. I think that's probably where ultimately the guidelines are headed as the evidence accumulates. Yeah. yeah. If, the, if the long-term data holds up for these newer agents, it might be something like you kind of look at their cardiovascular risk 
and make sure that they're on some of these agents which have been shown to have you know long-term benefits for for mortality and cardiovascular outcomes i think kind of like we're kind of moving towards like you said with lipids and uh with high blood pressure uh, rather than just uh, well, maybe high blood pressure is the great ex- greatest example <laughs> no, with the new target, but maybe with lipids, where you you calculate a risk score and then you say, okay, if the risk is th- this much, then we should put them on this med, which we, we know has benefit uh, for for these high risk populations. Okay, guys, I think we should probably move into an outro here. This has been another episode of the Curbsider, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. I'm starving. You could get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food and we will mail them to you weekly. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye. Oh, hi, Paul. And I'd like to thank all of our correspondents who do a lot of work for the show off air. And to Hannah Abrams, who is on Twitter, Beth Garbatelli on our Instagram, and Chris Chumanchu on Facebook. (laughs) 